like with John Scully. Um, John came from PepsiCo, and they, they at most would change their product, you know, once every 10 years. I mean, to them, a new product was like a new size bottle, right? So if you were a product person, you couldn't change the course of that company very much. So who influenced the success of PepsiCo? The sales and marketing people. Therefore, they were the ones that got promoted, and therefore, they were the ones that ran the company. Well, for PepsiCo, that might have been okay, but it turns out the same thing can happen in technology companies that get, get monopolies, like, oh, IBM and Xerox. If you were a product person at IBM or Xerox, so you make a better copy or a better computer. So what? When you have a monopoly market share, the company's not any more successful. So the people that can make the company more successful are sales and marketing people. And they end up running the companies. And the product people get driven out of the decision-making forums. And the companies forget what it means to make great products. It sort of the product sensibility and the, the product genius that brought them to, the, to that monopolistic position gets rotted out by people running these companies who have no conception of a good product versus a bad product. They have no conception of the craftsmanship that's required to take a good idea and turn it into a good product. And they really have no feeling in their hearts, usually, about wanting to really help the customers. So that's what happened at Xerox. The, the people at Xerox Park used to call the people that ran Xerox toner heads. Earth 2019. Dominant species, human. Galactic potential rating, zero. Cultural affiliation, combination of government and global businesses, corporatism, legacy institution. Species still conservative, superstitious, and religious. Ecologically illiterate, largely unaware of cosmological foundation of love. Level of technological dependence is disturbingly higher than the galactic standard. Species distracted and behavior controlled by technology companies. System error. Advanced concepts detected beyond normal human levels. New galactic potential rating, over 9000. Transmission type. Podcast. Host, The Man of Tomorrow. Brian Sovereign. Source, Sovereign Tech. Golden Stallion, the man of tomorrow, Savzu, the rated R radio star, the thriller that is Savzilla. Oh, some of you have even called me now <laughs> Rabbi Sovereign. Holy shit. Anyway, you know, boy, speaking of, you know, Rabbi generally, uh, you know, makes you think of a sage, right? We'll talk about some sage words that we opened up uh, with from, if you didn't guess it, Steve Jobs. Uh, granted, that's from Steve Jobs years ago. Now, not uninteresting, this is, if you go to, I have the, the YouTube link for that and in the show notes for the, that audio, and if you go to it, it is titled, Steve Jobs uh, Explains Why Companies Fail. And I'm not going to, you know, no need to open up with a bunch of stuff. I want to get right into kind of our lead story, which is in some ways based off of a, uh, a question from a message from a Sovereign Tech listener um, that I want to get into. But then also some stories that I've been reading uh, recently, as well as stuff we've talked about recently uh, on uh, the Wednesday Q&As um, that's available only for patrons. But I'm going to tell you right from the onset that we are dealing with like Steve Jobs says at the very end, we are dealing with toner heads right now throughout Silicon Valley. It is, it's so fucking bad that it's complete. It's not run by, as Steve Jobs has called them, product people or by the innovators 
perhaps more so. It's not run by the people who are, he even brought it up, people that uh, consider, you know, wow, how is this really going to help the consumer and so on? We're not getting that at all. Okay, not and, and sure as fuck, we're not getting that from Apple anymore. Uh, and it, well, to prove my point, we got an opening story here from Forbes. Okay, it's a bit of an editorial by uh, by Stephen McBride, and it's titled "The End of Apple." Okay, and I'm going to get into that, but first, I'm actually going to I'm going I want to read a little bit of the message that I got from uh, from the Sovereign Tech listener. Here goes uh, question for the show: Wherever you want to use it, uh, you've mentioned in the past you were a Mac user. Stallion breaking in. This is very true. Uh, I noticed a lot of creative folks still use a Mac for their work. Is this a cultural thing, a workflow thing? What made you ultimately turn away from using Mac OS? Also, I, and here's, here's maybe where it's a little more pertinent to what we're talking about. Also, I think Apple is really starting to feel the pinch of raising its smartphone prices to compensate for lower sales volume. Tech is supposed to be getting cheaper, but not mobile devices, it seems, and certainly not Apple's line of computers. So I want to address kind of the more personal questions to this a little later, but right now I want to talk to that last bit about how Apple is compensating for lower sales volume of iPhones by jacking up the prices. And here, I want to read the story from Forbes here. It's not long. Uh, Again, it's titled The End of Apple. Uh, Okay. Here I am sitting in a cab in New York City. I'm headed to uptown to Columbia University where we'll hold the blah, 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 blah. The driver and I are talking about the absurd price tag of the latest Apple iPhone. He's shocked when I tell him the cheapest model is $1,149. Quote, who can afford that? End quote, he asks. Apple has had an incredible decade. Since the iPhone debuted in 2007, the company's sales have jumped tenfold. The stock has soared over 700%. Up until last November, it was the world's largest publicly traded company. But two weeks ago, Apple issued a rare warning that shocked investors. For the first time since 2002, the company slashed its earnings forecast. Uh, The stock plunged 10% for its worst day in six years. This capped off a horrible few months in which Apple stock crashed about 35% from its November peak. uh, That erased $446 billion in shareholder value, the biggest wipeout of wealth in a single stock ever and it's only the beginning now stanley i want to break in up for a second on this where are the 10 billion fucking stories that were out there in november about this i mean as far as i could see they weren't really there granted you know since the internet's so algorithmic maybe the internet is feeding more to me uh, stories about cryptocurrencies and blockchain technologies and all that but boy you know if if an hour ago crypto wipes out a few billion dollars okay <laughs> from from it you know it's overall value Okay, whatever crypto it happens to be, Bitcoin, whatever. If that happens, oh, the death of Bitcoin. Holy shit. Oh, Davos says Bitcoin's dead or it's going to go to zero. Oh, give me a fucking break. Anyway, but oh, if Apple goes, if Apple stock is the biggest stock drop ever, $446 billion. Wow, that's weird. I, I don't think any of those investors sold off their Apple, their Apple shares. What, what, I, I don't get it. it, it you don't, I dare say these investors uh, maybe have a bias or are completely irrational. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so, but that's a side point. Reading on. Uh, let's see. If you looked at Apple's sales numbers, you wouldn't see anything wrong. Since 2001, Apple has seen steady revenue growth. By this measure, Apple's business seems perfectly healthy. By the way, if you want to look at the link in the show notes, there's charts and everything for you to look at. All your candlesticks, all your good times. Uh, but there's a secret hidden behind these headline numbers. Despite the revenue growth, Apple is selling fewer iPhones every year. In fact, iPhone unit sales peaked way back in 2015. Last year, Apple sold 14 million fewer phones than it did three years ago. Now, standing breaking in again for a second. Um, the One of the things that Tim Cook said in a uh, shareholder report was that he blamed actually repair of older iPhones on the reason that they're selling fewer. Like he just, he came up with excuse after excuse. I covered this on a Wednesday Q and a, um, that you gotta be a patron to get access to go to sovereigntech.com If you want to get your hook up with that. Okay. But I covered this whole thing, but basically, I mean, he was just coming up with, I mean, I think people genuinely are, especially when, Oh, can I get this year's iPhone? Oh shit. It's $1,200. You know, I can imagine people are wanting to repair their iPhone instead of buy a new one. Um, a lot of people are getting into kind of the, uh, <laughs> the rent seeking, 
tanking strategy by Apple where, you know, you can keep getting a new a new iPhone as long as you just pay for your iPhone with a monthly fee. But you kind of have to have, as I understand it, you have to have fairly good credit to be able to do that. And, you know, a lot of people that are really diehards or where $1,200 would be a problem, um, these are the people who see having an iPhone. They're either one or two things. In my, well, okay, they're not exact. This isn't true for everyone. But I think for a lot of people where, and again, Apple thinks about the majority, right? Of course they do. They're, they're, they're a business, and so they don't care about the individual, just like Steve Jobs was saying. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> I'm not saying businesses can't care about the individual. And I know you're saying, well, if they don't care about the individual, they don't do business. All right, that's not true anymore. And this this whole point is bringing that up. But, you know... It, just like a Marvel movies, okay, try to reach out to the lowest common denominator. They are not trying to reach out to the most intelligent individual. And that's kind of my point here is that they are, Apple is trying to reach out to the lowest common denominator. And in many ways they are. Because while this isn't true for everybody, most of the people that can't hash out just 1200 flat, okay, for a new iPhone are usually people who, who either are well, they, they think the Apple is like the easiest computer in the world to use, which might not be wholly unfair um, of them to say. And so, you know, they're not the brightest uh, tech brick on the block, as they say. Nobody says that except me. <laughs> but they're not that. Or they have fallen into a lifestyle obsession and they think that they can't get laid unless they're carrying an iPhone. And anyone that's not carrying an iPhone and doesn't use iMessage uh, must be some poor sap, even though they're really the poor sap that can't afford a $1,200 fucking iPhone. Which, hey, look, I'm not knocking them, okay, for, for not having that kind of money. Uh, most people don't. My point is, is that those same people are the people who don't have the credit score that can get into Apple's rent-seeking program uh, for, for the iPhone. Okay, that's, that's my point on that. So, but anyway, so yeah, I can imagine a lot of people are just like, oh, it's only 100 bucks to get a new battery because the price went back up after December 2018, or maybe it's 80 bucks, whatever the fuck it is, it doesn't matter. Like, oh, or it's 200 bucks to get my screen repaired by an Apple genius, which, talk about an oxymoron. Um, you know, wh whatever it is, okay, you know, the, the, they're just... They're dealing with that. So there might be some reality around that, but he laid out a bunch of others. Tim Cook laid out a bunch of other stuff where it's like, okay, now you're just coming up with excuses when the real answer is exactly everything that Steve Jobs was saying at the top of the show that, you know, you, you're no longer innovating. You're just, you're, you're making uh, me too products within your own company. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one thing when it's a me too product by another company, like, like Huawei wants to copy what Apple's doing. No, when it's within your own company, you're in trouble. <laughs> okay. Anyway, reading on with the story here, uh, in 2014, the average selling price for iPhone was roughly $600, according to Statista. Uh, when Apple released its latest flagship phone last year, the average iPhone price went up to $800, according to Statista. Uh, but technology always gets cheaper over time. Not so long ago, a flat-screen, high-definition TV was a luxury. Even a small one cost thousands of dollars. Today, you can get a 55-inch one from Best Buy for $500. In 1984, Motorola sold the first cell phone for $4,000. The average price for a smartphone today is $320, according to a research firm IDC. In all, cell phone prices have come down roughly 92%. Frankly, it's remarkable that Apple has managed to pull this off, meaning that they keep raising their prices. Uh, frankly, or yeah, anyway, but let me tell you this. It comes down to the life cycle, or Apple, it's, he's saying Apple can't raise prices anymore. It comes down to the life cycle of disruptive businesses. 12 years ago, only 120 million people owned a cell phone. Today, over 5 billion people own a smartphone, according to IDC. Apple was the driving force behind this explosion. As the dominant player in a rapidly growing market, it, bec it became the most profitable publicly traded company in history. Then iPhone sales uh, growth stalled in 2015. This would have been the end for most businesses. But Apple did a masterful job of extending its prime through price hikes. Its prestigious brand and army of diehard fans allowed it to charge prices that seemed crazy just a few years ago but now iphone price hikes have gone about as far as they can go stanley breaking in again this is referring to exactly what apple founder steve jobs was just saying that it all comes down to the sales and marketing people that end up making the money for the company and the product get, people get left behind and you end up with what's the only trick you have left oh we're not innovating anymore because sales and marketing ended up running the company we're not innovating anymore and so we're just going to end up starting to jack up the prices but now as Stephen McBride here is making the case uh, you can't do that forever so reading on after all what's the most let's see but now uh, iPhone price hikes have gone about as far as they can go after all what's the most you would pay for a smartphone $1,500 $2,000 how bad is this? 
It's so bad that Apple now keeps it a secret. In November, Apple announced it would stop disclosing iPhone unit sales. That's November 2018. This is a very important piece of information. Investors deserve to know it. Yet Apple now keeps it secret. Keep in mind, the iPhone is Apple's crown jewel. iPhone generates two-thirds of Apple's overall sales. Let that sink in. Two-thirds. Stanley breaking in. Two-thirds of overall sales for the company. A publicly traded company that makes most of its money from selling phones is no longer telling investors how many phones it sells. And its other business lines uh, can't pick up the slack for falling iPhone sales. 20% of Apple's revenue comes from iPads and computers. Those segments are also stagnant. And again, Stanley breaking in, you know, prices getting jacked up and not really dropping, uh, which you do see in, in, in other industries. Believe me, we, we got a grander point we're going to get into because Tim Cook has said other very interesting things recently. He's gone to Congress. Tim Cook goes to Washington, baby. We're going to talk about that. Uh, anyway, so which which means 86% of Apple's business is going nowhere. Could Apple go the other way and slash iPhone prices? I ran the numbers. If Apple cut uh, prices back to 2016 levels, it would have to sell 41 million additional phones just to match 2018's revenue. Uh, will Apple meet Nokia's fate? And so now he's going to bring up the comparison to Nokia where he's basically saying how Nokia was the big boy uh, before Apple came in with the iPhone and, and Nokia just tanked because why? Because Nokia didn't innovate, you know, and then they end up getting, I mean, granted, yes, they end up getting bought up by Microsoft and so on. You run into all kinds of problems as far as that goes. Okay, but it's a solid point to bring up here. Now, let's go for the hat trick of what's going on here, okay? Uh, Tim Cook has made, I mean, he made pretty big news with that, you know, that shareholder announcement that, oh, shit, you know, uh, <laughs> we're running into all, you know, we're going to have to slash, uh, uh, you know, expectations and uh, projections of what we're going to bring in and so on. And now we're not going to tell you about our iPhone sales either, which, I mean, that that's fucking insane. I, I think anybody in the right mind would realize, uh, whoa, wait a minute, why aren't you doing that? You know, I mean, if, if you are this, you know, juggernaut, unstoppable company, why do you have any reason to hide numbers like that? Well, precisely. But anyway, Tim Cook went to uh, Congress. This story's from January 17th. I got a link for it in the Washington Post. I'm just going to read you his quotes. But basically, he's going in there saying, in fact, here's the headline of the story. Uh, Apple's Tim Cook wants Congress to rein in data brokers. Um, so let, let me read a little bit of what Tim Cook uh, actually actually said. So he says, quote, meaningful, comprehensive federal privacy legislation should not only aim to put consumers in control of their data it should also shine a light on actors trafficking in your data behind the scenes. Some state laws are looking to accomplish just that. Now, he says state laws, not not federal laws. But right now, there is no federal standing uh, standard protecting Americans from these practices. Now, I'm going to I want to read another quote from him, and then we're going to put this all together. Quote, as this debate kicks off, this is Tim Cook. There will be plenty of proposals and competing interests for policymakers to consider. We cannot lose sight of the most important constituency, individuals trying to win back their right to privacy, end quote. Now, OK, let's talk about this, because these are absolutely related. If you don't think they are, you're kidding yourself. This is very, you know, everything's down to sales and marketing. Like Steve Jobs says, this is sales and marketing right here. This is marketing full force. All right. This is a total. I mean, this is absolutely Tim Cook doesn't give a rat shit about your privacy. Not, I mean, he really, he, he doesn't care at all. And the easiest way to point that out, I mean, is, is quite simply any security, cybersecurity researcher worth their salt would tell him, Apple, your products can't work like magic if they're going to actually be secure in our modern day. They can't be. You're going to have to you're going to have to hook people up with two factor authentication. You're going to have to do all these other things. And all of these other things are not what Apple has done. I mean, how many what, you know, what was it the fappening? Right. Remember that where however much iCloud data was leaked. I mean, there's just all kinds of issues where they are not implementing best practices as far as cybersecurity goes. OK. And if they care about the individual just so goddamn much. Again, it can't work like magic because what's the 10th law of thermodynamics? There is always a trade-off between convenience and security. Always. It, it, it's inescapable. And it would appear, just on their product line, 
You know, you don't have to have any special information. Just walk into an Apple store and you can figure this out. Convenience is far more important to Apple than security, or at least security in the extreme where they could even do something about a lot of these uh, quote-unquote data brokers. Now, what's really going on here? What is he talking about? Now, a lot of people are saying Tim Cook is going after like commentators and maybe if Tim Cook extrapolated extrapolated a little bit, he would say, well, we're going after the shadow economy that's out there. He loves using that term. Uh, the shadow economy of companies that are, you know, kind of like a, sort of a Cambridge Analytica situation, you know, kind of third party companies that are feeding perhaps off of data collected by uh, the tech giants and so on, or just you know, a company in general that is offering some kind of service that is selling off your data. However, anyway, however that works out. Okay. Whatever that company happens, you know, happens to be. And I'm not going to disagree with Tim Cook that data brokers are a very real problem, okay? Because often their uh, uh, concepts of cybersecurity are 10 times worse than, than Apple's. I mean, just, just, horrible equifax i mean go down i mean they're not exactly a data broker but they are i I mean go down the fucking list now apple probably feels that they can make this kind of claim they can take this kind of stand because the argument goes is that apple doesn't make its uh its trillions or billions or whatever they don't make that off of your data Okay, right. They're the ones that, oh, no, no, we just make money off hardware, hardware, which they sell at ridiculous price hikes, right, which we were just describing. (laughs) So, you know, they really they make their money off of just jacking up prices on things that are supposed to be going significantly down in price. And look, I'm sorry, it's not like they're suddenly using a higher grade of uh, glass or aluminum or something. There's really no there's no good reason other than the fact that they are just jacking up the prices to make up for lack of, uh, you know, volume sales volume. Uh, I mean, that's that's really what's going on. Everybody knows it. So they don't make money off of your data. In fact, arguably, like the reason Siri sucks so hard, we've talked about this over the years on Sovereign Tech. The reason Siri sucks so hard in comparison to other virtual assistants is because Apple claims that they won't collect your data or they won't store your data any longer than six months that gets collected by Siri itself. And so Siri can never you know, build as complete a picture as, say, Google Assistant or Alexa or whoever else can, uh, you know, from the other tech giants, whatever other virtual assistant is out there, because they just don't have as much data and they delete it, you know, supposedly every six months. And I say supposed there's other we we've t- again, when we've talked about that in the past, there's other ways that Apple is collecting a lot of data about you. Every time they acquire another company, they end up collecting a shit ton of data about you or that other company's users. In any case, even if it's not exactly you. But regardless, OK, so they have a claim that they don't make they, they make money off of the sales of their hardware. And of course, the percentages that weren't list off, listed off in that Forbes story are coming from the App Store, which does honestly very well for for Apple. So let's say then that when Tim Cook goes to Washington, let's say he somehow convinces because, I don't know, some senator or whoever, somebody in Congress, uh, their granddaughter just fucking loves her iPad or just loves her iPhone. And, and you know, the idea, you know, if Tim Cook was there, oh, you got to do what Tim Cook says, granddaddy, whatever. I don't know how the hell, you know, that all worked out. But regardless, let's say that Congress or even the states enact what and I know there's so many people that are like, oh, yeah, states rights. Yeah, states rights. You know, and well, <laughs> let's say any legislative body enacts what Tim Cook is talking about, you know, that that there needs to be some really harsh policies against data broker companies. And, oh, we got to care about the individual and all that. What do you think is going to happen? Who's going to get hurt by that? Well, ironically, I don't think Apple's going to get hurt by that because they're not data brokers. Wait, but their competition's going to get hurt by that, like Google, the biggest data broker in the world, and also, you know, <laughs> purveyors of Android, right? You know, iPhone's number one competitor. Uh, probably a shit ton of Chinese companies trying to do operations in the United States. They're going to run into all kinds of trouble. Microsoft's going to run into all kinds of trouble. Amazon's going to have all kinds of trouble if suddenly there are these really strict, strong uh, uh, privacy you know, regulations of some kind around data brokers, because that's effectively what a lot of these tech giants are, except for maybe, arguably, and there's arguments to be made, you know, not Apple. They're not, they're not one of the data brokers. So what's really going on here? 
This isn't Tim Cook giving a shit about you. This isn't Tim Cook saying, eh, oh, individual privacy. This is Tim Cook saying, holy fuck, my, my company is on fire. The, the Titanic that is Apple is sinking right now. We have hit the iceberg at $2,000 an iPhone. We've got to do something. So what do they do? They're going to go make legislation that wipes out their competition. Or they're going to try. And they're going to do it through a whole marketing angle, somehow making you think, oh, no, we got to care about you. I mean, one could get really conspiratorial and say, you know, I mean, Apple has phenomenal engineers and security specialists. I'm not going to take that away from them. They do. But that maybe some of their security specialists, they're the ones enacting a lot of the, we're going to talk about another one here maybe later. Uh, We might get to it, depending upon the time that we have. Um, But they're the ones that, hell, what if they're the ones doing all the data leaks and shit that, you know, Troy Hunt would report on or some of these other uh, cybersecurity specialists would end up reporting on? It's Apple themselves also that they could push some fucking legislation to tank Google, to tank Microsoft. I mean, because, you know, Google's winning with Android in a hardcore way, especially now. I mean, every time the iPhone price goes up, people are switching away from Apple. And they are running to Android when you can get a phone that can do just miraculous things for sub $200, you know, and can do just about everything that an iPhone can. uh, That becomes very attractive when that price, you know, again, every time that price hike happens with Apple becomes very attractive. And I mean, look, I, you know, I'm holding a Nokia 6.1. This is like a $200 phone. And uh, I mean, this thing feels amazing and it looks gorgeous. It has a black and bronze finish to it, you know, all, all aluminum. And I mean, it feels tough as nails. It gets all the latest security updates. We talked about that uh, recently that, you know, that was another thing Apple used to be able to argue for is that, oh no, we have the more secure operating system because Google with fragmentation, they keep fucking everything up. That's not true anymore. With the Android One program and all that stuff, Android is catching up to being as maybe not out of the box as secure a platform as ios is but the argument that security is behind on android is no longer true i have the, this is a nokia phone i have the latest uh the latest january security patches and updates on this i'm not behind on shit and i didn't have to pay 1200 dollars for the privilege i mean you know before when apple wanted to you know when they wanted to tout they their marketers and sales guys they wanted to tout how they're private and they're securing their shit even though again the happening um you know and they, they want to go real hardcore on that you know fine you you have a great time with that you make some really hot commercials and if you want to raise overall awareness perhaps of the need for privacy and of the genuine problems that are occurring on other platforms and with your competitors you have a fucking field day with that i, I have no problem you you do it But the instant that you want to start enforcing your business practices and protect your business with the butt of the gun by using the government, by going to Washington with some bullshit story about how you care about individuals, my goddamned ass you do, okay? (laughs) As soon as you do that, as soon as you start, I mean, Apple is effectively threatening violence against all of their competitors. You know, because every other competitor, just about every other tech giant, anybody that's hurting their iPhone sales, because what's keeping them from reaching whatever they needed to sell 40 million uh, more phones to, to reach some 2014 numbers or something like that. What's keeping them from doing that? Android, right? Maybe Chinese companies or, you know, something related to Google or who knows what any, any of that shit, right, is what's keeping them from doing that. So Apple's got to put them out of business. They can't do that by just constantly hiking the price on their phone, uh, 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 whatever, 3D touch or whatever the fuck they touch ID. Uh, no, not touch ID, whatever the 3D touch, all that bullshit that they're trying to sell you with their new iPhones. That's obviously not going to get them another 14 to 40 million uh, you know units sold. That's not going to make that happen. What's going to make that happen now? I think I think they're desperate. This is absolutely the act of a desperate company and a desperate man who has, you know, again, Steve Jobs called it. He said, what happens is, is that you get the sales and marketing guys who take over the company and the product guy who came up with the remarkable innovation that was the iPhone in the first place. And it was an innovation. It's not as revolutionary as a lot of people want to say, but it was a fucking innovation. I'm not going to take anything away from that. I think, I mean, honestly, the real innovation, as I've said many times, still belongs to Apple, and that is the iPod. The iPod was the massive, mo- that's what started the mobile revolution. The idea that you were accessing stuff regularly right from your pocket like that, um, and a lot of stuff, you know, not just, uh, not just a cassette tape and a, you know, and a Walkman. But the incredible innovators that came up with something like the iPhone, they are pushed out. They are done. And so what did Steve Jobs say? This is how a company fails. This is how a company tanks because the toner heads take over. And Tim Cook is toner head number one. He's number one and he's pointing a bullet at everybody else. 
by asking for any time, any time you're asking for that kind of legislation when it's, I mean, even with decriminalization, it's a whole other thing. But when you're asking for that kind of legislation, you are threatening violence against anyone that breaks, you know, that legislation. And, you know, again, I'm not saying, you know, in the abstract, he's not wrong. Yes, data brokers are a problem. Yes, Google collecting all this data, you know, individuals not having an understanding of what happens with their data. All of these things are very true, very accurate, very real. Okay, it's a very real point for him to make. But if you think that he's doing this, I mean, if he really cared about this, this data broker shit's been going on forever. He should have been in Congress years ago. No, the problem is, is now the bottom line for Apple, the company, AAPL or whatever, is hurting hard. And so he needs to go lobbying the government. He himself. It's that desperate. It's that bad. The story, the moral of the story or the conclusion, the, the, the end game of the story is the end of Apple. That company is done unless they can pass this kind of legislation that makes them in many ways the only game in town or they wisen up for a hot minute and and end up like actually letting a product guy come out with a goddamn product again. It's so bad. So I want to. Okay, (laughs) I want to get to the other. you know, the other, the other questions here, because I, I think that they're actually a lot of fun and, uh, and to talk about them. So like, uh, let's see, he says here, I noticed a lot of creative folks still use a Mac for their work. Is this a cultural thing, a workflow thing? Um, I think part of it, okay, here's the, here's the deal is that Apple did a very aggressive move, not a legal move, but did a very aggressive move decades ago where they more or less made Apple computers the computer of education from, you know, honestly, I mean, this goes back even to the Apple II, right? I remember when I was in elementary school in the 80s, Apple IIs were everywhere. Um, this ended up becoming, then, you know, then it was Macs later on. And then when you get to college, um, you get a great student discount on an Apple computer. And parents, th- this is real. I've talked about this before, but I think this is what ends up happening with these. And this is why it's still happening today. And in fact, in fact... I want you to, I'm I'm going to make a challenge for you when you go into a Starbucks. I want you to look at, if you have any, you know, like if you know the models and like like what a, what a touch bar and all that looks like, I mean, it's kind of rude to look at somebody else's computer. Just don't try not to look at their screen, but just look at the Mac and see which year it is. Because I bet you're going to find most of the, if you can tell the difference, most of the MacBooks that you see in a Starbucks or that you see the creative professionals using or whatever, a lot of them are, some of them are like a decade old they are years and years and years old. You know, they're not upgrading. Now, Apple's last a good long while. This is the point I was going to get to, is that parents buying their student, you know, their college student, uh, a, a MacBook or whatever it was at the time, an iBook, you know, you name it, uh, do, I mean, they, they really do have a durability, or at least they used to. Maybe the new MacBooks that's starting to change. I'm hearing a lot of complaints from a lot of, uh, you know, really longtime Apple users, okay? Um, but MacBooks... You know, I mean, or, you know, Mac computers do last a good long while. I mean, they, they really it's it's a, their durability is really impressive. And the fact that most you can get software updates for a very long time frame in their uh, in their lifespan is pretty impressive. Um, I've brought it up many times. I have a nine, an original 98 iMac that still works to this day. It still works. It still does its business. I mean, that's fucking incredible. All stock parts. Uh, that's crazy. OK, so, you know, credit to Apple for that. So parents buying their kids a MacBook because it was something, you know, it was an investment that was going to last. That's not an inaccurate statement. But here's the thing is that because it is just the vogue thing in college and because it's what their parents bought them, you know, a computer that costs 2000, you know, anywhere from a thousand to twenty five hundred, whatever they ended up spending for the MacBook. Okay, they just keep using it. Here's the thing, though. They're not they're not using like the latest and greatest computers or the latest and greatest hardware. They're not forwarding computing in any way. Um, In fact, I love there is a great talk with Alan Kay, the, the legendary. Alan Kay of the Dynabook and all that, uh, where he hates the fact when he sees people using particular, I mean, laptops in general, but especially Apple uh, MacBooks, because he brought the point home. He said, you're using ancient technology. You know, when we have supercomputers out there that could be getting so much more done, he said, you're all using antiques. And I think he was kind of, in, you know, in a very quiet, open, uh, you know, an open secret way saying, you know, you're all using computers that you can't afford, but your parents bought for you, but you just keep on using it. And I mean, really, I think that's what happens because look and look, go to Starbucks and look around. They're not all using the latest and greatest Macs. 
Not most people. They're using ones that are five, six, seven, and maybe even 10 years old. And I'm not saying there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but it skews the perspective somehow that like everybody loves Macs and Macs are like the, you know, this great computer or something like that. Uh, when not really, it's, it's all ancient technology that everybody's jumping on, but they can't afford to buy a new one, but they're so, you know, they don't actually know how to use a computer. They only know how to use a Mac. And so they, they just, you know, they, they stick with it. In fact, you know, fuck this guy, Palmer Lucky. Like, seriously, fuck him, okay? Uh, I, I have stories that we could talk about that, that, that he's come out with recently, but really, fuck him. Anyway, but he did raise a great point, okay, at one point when he was still at Oculus, because uh, they're asking, well, you know, is Oculus going to come to the Mac? Are you going to do this? And he just came right out and said, totally brazen, and I got to respect it. He said, if Apple would make a real computer, Oculus would develop for it. And that just, bam! Like <laughs> he just, he just hit it. Like, like, no, they don't, they don't make real computers. You know, again, it's all because there's this discount that you get when you go to college, everybody, or so many other people are using them, you know, in college and so on. But really it's not like a lot of these college kids can afford, you know, these, these, you know, thousand to 2,500 to $4,000, whatever computers is that their, their parents bought them for them and they just never get rid of them. You could say that there's a good thing in that, but also it skews, you know what maybe the best tools to use are uh, i mean and and this gets back into the problems of price hikes where you know where apple has not dropped the price of macbooks as to where other companies you know asus acer and so on uh make computers that can do 20 that can run circles around every macbook out there and they cost less than half the price of a macbook it's it's really fucking insulting so Apple has to contend with that, too. I mean, the computers they're making are or their MacBooks now are, as I understand it, are shittier than they've ever been. But also, you know, they're not going to make I mean, they've been playing the price hike game with Macs for the longest time. You know, it's an, I guess it's somewhat of a new game for for uh, for iPhone. But with Macs, no, 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 it's not a new game at all. But again, I'll, I'll give them, you know, MacBooks credit or, you know, Mac computers credit. They do last a good long while uh, as far as. OK, now I want to get to the other question. This is kind of a personal one. I won't spend a ton of time on it. Uh, what made you ultimately turn away from using Mac OS? So I've said this many times. Uh, my favorite computer uh, it, it's usually it's a tie or it's kind of a toss up, depending upon how I'm feeling between the Commodore 64 uh, which is the computer I grew up with, and then the Mac G4 Cube, which I just thought was the most amazing little thing, and it really is just brilliant fucking design. That The Mac G4 Cube, that's a product of a time when Apple was run by product people. You know, and in fact, it was around the same time when that that Forbes story mentioned 2002, when they reported their last uh, projections cut. Uh, that's that's when I pretty much walked away from uh, from Apple. But at that point. I think Apple was still innovating heavily with their, you know, PowerPC architecture and so on, you know, the G5 chip and and go down the list. Uh, that sort of that sort of points at what got me away from them is when they switched to Intel processors. I wasn't as excited. I mean, they were really making leaps and bounds in, you know, they're going beyond 64 bit processors. I mean, it was really crazy what they were going to be developing. And then they just dropped it completely. And PowerPC at the time Ironically, uh, my favorite distribution, my favorite operating system at the time wasn't even Mac OS. My favorite operating system at the time was, uh, you know, it was like Fedora and, and what Red Hat was doing. I mean, Fedora itself actually wouldn't come out to like 03, but Red Hat had some things in that game. Anyway, running Linux on PowerPC was, you know, on PowerPC architecture was really, really slick. It was really nice. But in the end, what really got me away from Apple was now when OS, when OS 10 first came out, Okay, first off, like I loved, you know, OS 7 through, well, 9 wasn't that big of a leap from 8, but when OS 7 through 9 was happening, I mean, there was just, that was such a, such a brilliant little operating system. I really, really liked that. Uh, OS 10 originally I was very supportive of because I liked the fact that if you were a power user and you, you knew your, your Unix shit, you know, you could, you could change anything you wanted with that OS. It was pretty awesome. But it got to the point where Apple started to really start to curtail like all of the power user aspects of uh, of OS 10. And when they started to do that, it just kind of became pointless. And while I still continue to use Windows computers and I have pretty much forever, I mean, the reason I do that is just, again, there is just some software and including gaming and some other things where, you know, you have to have a Windows machine. 
And no, you can't do it in VM on Linux. I'm sorry, you can't. I don't care what the math says. It doesn't, it doesn't work as well. Um, but anyway, you know, that's why I kind of stuck with Windows. But really, Linux has been my main OS for the longest time now. Uh, so it's not like I left Mac to go to Windows. I, I left Mac and I just stuck with Linux, which was, you know, maturing more and more, especially at that time frame. Um, and I mean, that, that's, that's, that's what it was for me, was just I really felt like, you know, as to where before, Mac was all about the user and all about, I mean, there's still a lot of tools for creativity and all that within it, um, but there just wasn't enough. And honestly, the PC gaming, you know, landscape at the time was so white hot and like some of the greatest games ever were coming out. I just ended up spending less and less time on my Mac. And so I was like, well, fuck, why am I even using this? You know, if I'm spending more time on a Windows machine for gaming or, you know, just to do, uh, you know, just to play around with with Linux uh, more so, which, you know, I was so excited about at the time. Uh, I mean, I use Fedora. I would end up using Slackware quite a bit and so on. I mean, if I was still a Mac user to this day, I would run away from them now because it's just gotten worse. Like with the Mac App Store, that's horrible. That That's fucking horrible. You know, not letting you independently install. I mean, it does still let you independently install software, but I, I, I think that's just like the worst idea ever for computing. I just couldn't support that. You know, I get it on mobile platforms. Even there, I disagree with it. That's why I tell people to like on Android phones to install F-Droid or to even, uh, you know, for developers to offer independent downloads of APKs. Um, you know, I, I, I couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't agree with the Mac App Store. And look, I don't. If you think, well, what about the Microsoft Store on Windows 10? I don't agree with that either. Like, I, I don't. So really, I guess what took me away from Mac OS was, in general, not just with Mac, but in general, the freedom to install what you want and do what you want with your computer has been, has been getting whittled away for a very long time, for over a decade now. And really, Mac OS and Apple have led that charge of keeping you from like really be, from being a power user and really allowing you to get the business done. That's my opinion on it. People disagree with me from time to time. I hear from Apple users. Hey, look, I'll give Apple the credit where it's due, okay? But there's, uh, I'll say this, as we've made this entire case for over half this episode, this is a company in turmoil. This is a company in real trouble, and now they're being, this, it's absolutely horrendous that they are fucking going to Congress just because their share prices are tanking. Fuck them. So anyway, if, if Apple ends out of this, dynamite or if it doesn't it's not the juggernaut anymore and they have to go back to being product people great we win because maybe they'll innovate some new great product uh they'll have another ipod of some kind who knows and i am not unsupportive of that so or maybe they'll genuinely make a smartphone that is actually all about privacy that's really about privacy wouldn't that be a hoot you know maybe it won't have cameras on it because fuck cameras i mean whatever you know i mean that's yeah maybe but probably not anyway Down goes that company. I'll be right back with some more Sovereign Tech. Woo, boy, you know, you want to talk about companies diving and all that. You want to talk about anything. I want you to go check out a show. I mean, you won't believe it. It's called Free Talk Live. You can go to the website, freetalklive.com. It is an open phone show. They, They talk about stuff every night. In fact, it's the only libertarian show on the radio, really. And the number 27 talk show in the United States. Can you believe that? I mean, think about how many there are out there. Number 27. It's huge. But you can call in and you can talk about anything you want. You can bring up anything. You want to talk about the end of Apple? Hell, I imagine that'd be a fascinating conversation to have with people. I used to be a co-host on there for years. I had such a great time interacting with callers and everything. You can be one of those callers. You can get your hookup. You can talk about whatever you want to talk about. I want you to go freetalklive.com. Run seven nights a week, three hours a night. That's remarkable. I'm telling you, the thing will become like your family. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Freetalklive.com. Go check it out. Give it a listen. If you want, let them know the Golden Stallion sent you there. Woo, let's get back to more. This week in blockchain. You know, talking about innovation. Well, <laughs> Sometimes innovation's a good thing. Sometimes people think that, oh, we need to innovate just to innovate. Sometimes, I don't know, people are just kind of polishing their knobs, I think. Uh, but this is an interesting story from, uh, from the next web, uh, which is U.S. academics say their shardy blockchain will be 10 times faster than Visa. Oh, boy. 
We're getting another blockchain. <laughs> Let's read about this. U.S. academics are working together to create a new and improved cryptocurrency in a bid to rival Bitcoin. According to Bloomberg, professors from seven U.S. colleges, including MIT, University of California, Stanford University, and Berkeley, are looking to create a digital currency capable of processing thousands of transactions a second without sacrificing the basic principle of decentralization. The project is run by Distributed Technology Research, DTR, a nonprofit organization established by academics with support from Pantera Capital Management LP to develop decentralized technologies. Unit E, the digital currency currently in the works, is DTR's first initiative. Um, Now they're going to start listing off Bitcoin's problems. As cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology seek to break into the mainstream consciousness, there's justifiable concern about the tech's capability to keep up with the demand. Digital currencies such as Bitcoin and Ethereum use blocks to process transactions. In this instance, a transaction is essentially a transfer of value between wallets, which is recorded on the blockchain. In the early days, the maximum size of these blocks was limited, in Bitcoin's case, to just one megabyte. This me- uh, mechanism was put in place to make Bitcoin more secure, but has failed to make the network future-proof. Let me put it this way. Each transaction incurs more data with the maximum block size sitting at one megabyte. There's a limit to how many payments the network is able to process simultaneously. Bitcoin is able to handle three to four transactions per second, whereas Ethereum can handle slightly more, a maximum of 15 transactions per second, but both fall short of the volume required to meet the ever-growing demand. Scalability is an issue that needs to be addressed, and although some forks have taken place, no real consensus over the block size limit and its potential effects on decentralization has been reached as of yet. Failing to address the issue could have far-reaching consequences for the industry. Transactions will likely take longer and longer to complete, and a potential decrease in adoption could incur major losses across cryptocurrency markets. Despite the emergence of of many altcoins over the years, Bitcoin is credited with being the first digital currency in trustless peer-to-peer payment network. It's built up somewhat of a cult following among anarchists, absolutely, developers and speculators, but has failed to gain mainstream adoption. Joey Krug, co-chief investment at uh, at Pantera Capital in San Francisco and a member of the DTR Council, Council, told Bloomberg, quote, the mainstream public is aware that these networks don't scale. We are on the cusp of something where if this doesn't scale relatively soon, it may be relegated to ideas that were nice, but didn't work in practice more like 3D printing than the internet. Conscious that they're up against a complex issue, the academics working on Unit E are leveraging new instruments for reaching consensus. They are relying on sharding. Terrible name. (laughs) A process used to ensure that each node will only hold a part of the data on the blockchain and not the entire set of information and new payment channel networks to increase speed. Uh, Pramud uh, Viswanath, a professor of electrical and computer engineering at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign working on the project, said, quote, Bitcoin has shown us that distributed trust is possible, but it's not it's just not scaling at a dimension that could make it a truly global everyday money. It was a breakthrough that has the capacity to change human lives, but that won't happen unless the technology can be scaled up. Unit E is expected to launch in the second half of 2019, and its proponents hope it will be able to process as many as 10,000 transactions per second, which far surpasses Visa's capability to process around 1,700. Uh, all right, let's talk about this a little bit. First off, no mention of Lightning Network whatsoever, uh, you know, by, by TNW, by the next web. Uh, this is probably native advertising. I imagine that uh, was Pandora, uh, Pandora Capital or whatever it was <laughs> that they were. Uh, they ended up actually paying for this story to get printed. Sorry, it's Pantera Capital. Anyway, I imagine Pantera Capital paid for this because there are solutions for the scaling issue with Bitcoin. Lightning Network is one of them. I'm very supportive of that. And I think that it's, I mean, talk about brilliance. Uh, and it's its community-led brilliance. It's not necessarily the brilliance that, oh, you can trust us. We're academics at MIT. And all. I mean, even though I know there are people who are at MIT that you know work with Bitcoin. Um, but regardless of that, Unit E, I mean, okay, this can be a thing. I... What I really think is the deal here is that, and the reason maybe Pantera Capital and whoever else are saying, oh, we need this, we need, I mean, it's funny that there is this, in this story, there's this recognized need, oh yeah, we need blockchain, we need, you know, decentralized uh, money, which is basically what their, what their, you know, their rally cry here is, and they want Unit E to be that thing. And so they're getting what is perceived as the, you know, the world's brightest minds on the problem. Okay, how can we make a digital currency that's faster? Granted, notice there's no conversation around making it more private, 
Well, that, <laughs> that's that's an issue. That's something I've I, I mean that even with Bitcoin, as much as I love it, um, you know, I've I've taken some issue with and why I've been so excited about Zcash for uh, for so long, and I mean for a long, long time. But there's a part of me that can't help but feel that this push for Unit E or for DTR. Uh, is part of that conversation we had a few episodes ago uh, titled The End, that was the name of the episode, um, That where Douglas Rushkoff was talking about how he talked to other investors about how their primary concern is, okay, you know, there's going to be this financial collapse or there's going to be some kind of collapse, whatever that ends up being. How do I protect my wealth? What do I do to keep my company kind of running or whatever, you know, something like that. Basically, how, how do I survive this, you know, this crazy economic collapse? And this really does feel like they're saying, OK, we need to create this currency because they're so hot about decentralization. They're not hot about privacy and a lot of the other aspects of what makes Bitcoin or, you know, what makes digital cryptocurrency so, so exciting or, you know, varying aspects of them, not just in Bitcoin, but in other coins as well. Um, they're not so much talking about all of that. They are talking about how do we make a currency um, that I mean, and maybe to have the speed of whatever, 11,000 transactions a second, maybe they feel they can't bake in encryption. Uh, I find that specious, but maybe. Maybe. But they are interested in decentralization. And, the you know, what makes decentralization great, you know, applying it to technology is that it keeps you from need. It keeps it keeps there from being a central point of failure. OK, which if there were some kind of technological or economic collapse of some kind, not having a central point of failure helps guarantee that say a ledger or you know cryptocurrency kind of same thing but you know that 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 would survive this situation and so i think that there is a very very and i'm I'm sure they're looking for other investors because they want this problem to get solved or they're looking for other minds to get excited about it whatever Um, but they want to get the world on this on board with this and it does kind of speak to to the point that that I've made in the past where I think Silicon Valley was absolutely in a bubble. We're seeing the ramifications of that. You know, the Piper is still getting paid when it comes to Apple, which we talked about earlier in this episode where look, you know, you can try all these different schemes of price hikes and whatever else and hiding from investors, just how many units are being sold per year or per quarter. And, you know, and maybe that will stave off, uh, you know, some, some, shall we say, economic actions that maybe the investors would take, uh, you know, to, to, again, stave off the, the fall or, I mean, because if people start panicking and they start taking money out of Silicon Valley, they're going to flip the fuck out. So, you know, I've, I've brought out the and, and it's going to end up like crashing these companies. And I've brought up the point that, you know, getting interested in blockchain and selling off blockchain as like, oh, we got to put that everywhere, you know, in Silicon Valley was really a way of holding, you know, because that allowed for, for a short period of time, that time I think is largely past because Scam City is, you know, people are all wise to it. Um, you know, it allowed for a time frame where you could generate value and quote unquote money uh, seemingly out of nowhere, right? You just end up creating ERC, you know, 20 coin or whatever. And then, oh, look, I have, I have $10 million. And so Silicon Valley was able to, uh, you know, survive on that for a little while. Um, but now, again, I think the, the Piper is getting paid here and that, you know, there's no return on those promises with those coins. And so, you know, now the, the bubble is coming back for Silicon Valley. And this unit E might just be like the latest attempt at trying to stave off this fall. Or it's either the attempt to, you know, stave off this, uh, you know, this tech bubble popping or it's there to be the instrument that allows the tech execs, investors, VCs, whoever, to survive um, that bubble popping and to have something there in place. I mean, and who knows just how bad it's going to be. Um, I would be intrigued if suddenly, like, well, really, like if credit card companies started investing like in, in what DTR is doing in Unit E, I would get very, very worried. We'd end up like, I mean, I could almost imagine a fight club situation, right, where... <laughs> Where everybody wants to erase the debt and all that, and you and you have to, oh boy, <laughs> that that could get pretty bad. Now, before you think that everything I was saying in that episode previously, okay, and again, I think Unity is kind of pointing at it. 
before you think that what I would, because again, like this is the first time where not, it's not the first time, but it's one of the very first times where it seems like very quote unquote, and that, you know, this term's bullshit, but you get my point, very legit or legacy systems seem to hold an interest in creating, uh, you know, some kind of impressive cryptocurrency and that it needs to scale and be a big deal and so on. So I think that's an interesting point to bring up as well. Uh, like there is this recognized need for it, which again, I, like I said, I think points at what we were talking about that, uh, you know, investors and, and execs and everyone else, they see, oh, this is all going to fall apart. We got to have a way to store our value. Decentralization really allows for that as far as, you know, in a somewhat still, you know, connected, uh, world with some kind of tech infrastructure that would allow for that. Uh, Anyway, you know, to just to wonder, I have some friends who are in acquaintances, who are VCs, who are very much uh, not just in the blockchain space, but in, you know, knee deep in Silicon Valley and all that, and uh, have really helped fund um, some pretty big names now. And I asked them, I was like, you know, I, I heard this thing from Douglas Rushkoff, and actually I sent them my episode, and I was like, you know, I've never asked you to do this before. Give my show a listen, even though in the past they've loved it, you know, whatever. Okay. But give my show, give this episode a listen. And and I, and, and they listened to it and I reached out to about five, six people. And granted, you could say that's not like a huge sample size, but it's something. And they're people that I trust to, to a degree. <laughs> and I was like, you know, what do you think? You're like, is this happening? Like you got buddies, you know, you have buddies of buddies that, that, that actually believe this shit or like that they would actually ask Rushkoff a question like this. All of them, the ones that got back to me, which I think was like five of them, they got back to me and they said, yes, they knew people that thought that way. Or a couple of them even said they think that way, that this whole like that the Silicon Valley bubble, it's going to pop, um, that there's going to be. I mean, and it's here's the thing is that when the Silicon this isn't about like bank runs and shit like that, not not that not that horseshit economic collapse stuff. Here's the deal is that so how many, you know, companies, businesses, just your run of the mill business, I don't care, the one that sells flowers, how many of them rely upon Stripe, PayPal, Google, you know, go down the list of the of the tech company that they completely rely upon to make their own business infrastructure uh, a little more seamless, easy, you know, easier for their uh, their customers. And that allows them to do it on the cheap, right, where they can just use an old iPad and, and hook up a credit card reader to, to do all their business. If there was any kind of really ugly collapse in Silicon Valley alone, it would have ramifications, you know, in just about every industry, at least in the United States and really huge swaths around the world. I mean, it it would be an ugly, ugly situation. It really would. And if you think that Google thing, I mean, because I know some people want to say, well, look, Google's never going to go down. Oh, they have so much money. Oh, they're going to do fine. Then why is Larry Page hanging out in the Caribbean? right now in wanting his privacy or why are you know go down the list of texas x even from the from the tech giants google included why are they all buying ranches in new zealand i mean and they are they're independently doing that i talked about that on that episode where we covered what douglas rushkoff was saying about how tech execs are just looking how do i survive this collapse now we're almost out of time so i want to wrap up my point here okay in this episode real quick unit e not necessary bitcoin like i said with lightning network it's going to be fine but the broader point that there is some kind of that, that the bubble's still going to pop in Silicon Valley, some kind of, shall we say, not economic collapse, but tech collapse could be on its way. You know, I mean, from varying factors, be it the bubble popping, be it a Mirai botnet, be it a whole lot of other things. I am just going to I'm not going to tell you what to do throughout the year of 2019. I might make some suggestions, but I would batten your hatches, okay, your tech hatches anyway, and really consider consider first off doing as much as you can locally. And I don't I don't mean like I mean yeah, if you want to buy local like economically, fine. But I mean do as much as you can locally with your own machines and everything. Just start thinking about it. Start getting your data in order, okay, and start thinking about like like battening that down and just I don't know. I, there's. To quote, to quote the, the famous Star Wars line, I've got a bad feeling about this. Um, there's, there's a few too many pieces coming together, a few too many things coming out there. And I was not, I was not, I did not walk away with confidence 
when the people that I personally reached out to are very deep in the space, were saying, no, this is absolutely real. And, you know, that that tech execs and investors are looking to where they can run away to to survive. And so I think this is something that should be on my listeners radar. I think it's something that should be on your radar. I think it's something that you should be considering. And at the very least, as I've been bringing up often, really in the past couple of years and really throughout the years on Sovereign Tech, I want you to consider or reconsider your relationship with your technology. You know, if your phone, if whatever cloud services don't work and your phone is shit, um, you know, shit's about, I mean, and you don't have GPS, do you know how to get around? That might present a problem. Um, you know, all kinds of things that I just, I want you to consider your relationship with technology and just wonder if cloud services alone, if that, if those alone somehow shut down, okay, because they were centralized and some issue occurred. How would that affect your life? How would that change things? I just want you to think about it and consider it. I'm not saying, you know, go, oh, my God, everything's the sky is falling. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying anything like that. I just want you to consider it because I don't like what I'm hearing. And I don't like what I'm reading. And I don't like the picture that it's painting. Okay. So consider that. Anyway, that's it for this week's Sovereign Tech. Ooh. Of course, if you want to support the show, you just go to SovereignTech.com. You can find all kinds of ways to do that. And, uh, well, looks like we're already off to a hell of a 2019. So, anyway, I will see all of you on the other side. You just experienced Sovereign Tech. Go to SovereignTech.com. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N-Tech.com. And connect with us there. Find links from today's show and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is copy heart. Copying art is an act of love. And love is not subject to law. So please, share the show however you like. Welcome to the evolution. 